I don't know if you've been experiencing this at all, but it's kind of weird with all the shade that everybody's been tossing at AstraZeneca. I almost feel bad for a drug company here, Um, (laughs) which is not something I ever really thought I'd be saying. I I kind of feel like being like, uh, hey, Astra, you doing all right there, buddy? (laughs) (laughs) It's AstraZeneca's no good, very bad week. It is. We actually had a great headline on Politico Nightly that said Sad Astra, um, and I can't take credit for that, but Uh, that's where we are. I AstraZeneca can't even. (laughs) Oh, God. That'll be the next one. Hey there, Pulse Check listeners. This is Jeremy Siegel, continuing our special series on the coronavirus pandemic. And I know last week I said no more AstraZeneca puns, but hey, I lied. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Overmall about AstraZeneca's no good, very bad, well, you know the rest. Here's our conversation. The AstraZeneca vaccine is once again being called into question. Just yesterday, results from a U.S. trial showed it was safe and effective. But today, U.S. health officials are accusing the company of cherry-picking data to make it look more effective than it actually is. Already there were some doubts raised. Let's go through the timeline of everything that's happened here. AstraZeneca, the company that partnered with Oxford in the UK on its coronavirus vaccine, the one that Europe recently freaked out over, over unproven fears of causing blood clots, something we've covered on this show. Um, AstraZeneca, on Monday night, it releases this data of how its vaccine is is working in the U.S. And it looks good initially, right? Exactly. So it looks pretty good. It says that it's 79% effective against broad coronavirus um, and 100% effective against severe infection, hospitalization, the stuff that we argue, you know, really is what matters most in terms of making this into something that's not so damaging. Mm -hmm. And that puts it on par with other vaccines that are out there, most notably the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that was recently authorized. But then that data were called into question really late on Monday night by this very rare statement put out by the National Institutes of Health, specifically over something called a data safety monitoring board. A data safety monitoring board. What's that? That's a board that's sort of like referees for these vaccine trials. All the data come into them first. Uh They analyze, they assess. Uh, This ensures that there's independent people looking at the data, but also that it stays blinded so that people can't be persuaded one way or another on if something works or doesn't. So now they've essentially accused AstraZeneca of jumping the gun, releasing data from February that they know is not the most recent information. And they're kind of befuddled as to why the company did that. So they're basically saying that AstraZeneca might have cherry picked their data to look good? Well, they don't want to go so far as to saying why AstraZeneca did that, but they essentially said in their letter, we know that you have more recent data because we've shared that data with you. And that more recent data say that it's actually somewhere between 69 and 74% effective, Hmm. which is the most astonishing part of this because that means it's still a safe and effective vaccine. And they essentially 
cut their legs off for like 5% and made themselves look bad when we're still talking about a vaccine that works. So weird. Is this a normal thing for a drug company to do? Have you ever seen anything like this? No, I haven't. But this is somewhat in line with this trend we've been seeing over this past year where companies are sort of releasing data by press release. This has been a complaint from public health experts and scientists who say companies are eking out information. They're not giving us all of the data so we can look at, you know, all the potential problems or, or not issues, mm-hmm. just just details that could be in there. Instead, they are announcing things like this. So then we get great headlines for AstraZeneca Monday morning, only to get confusion late Monday night because the whole story wasn't there. Yeah, it's kind of bonkers to see this whole tizzy going down really in in public. Like I saw, you know, some of these stories that say AstraZeneca is on track to get emergency approval. And then I see Dr. Fauci on TV basically chiding AstraZeneca in public. It really is unfortunate that this happened. You know, this is really what you call an unforced error, because the fact is, this is very likely a very good vaccine. And this kind of thing does you nothing, but really casts some doubt Uh, about the vaccines and maybe contribute to the hesitancy. I know you're saying that uh, federal officials aren't saying what's behind this, but what do you make of all of it? Well, going back to how we started by just saying it's been a rough time for AstraZeneca, mm-hmm. I think that they did want to, and I don't have I don't have this, of course, clear from them or anyone, but they have had a hard time lately, yeah. and they had everything going on in Europe, which, despite those countries reversing on their suspensions of the vaccine, they've already dented confidence. We had a recent poll from YouGov in Europe saying that people in Germany, France, and Italy, 50% of them don't trust the AstraZeneca vaccine. Wow, that's a lot of people. A lot of people. And that's very damaging in many ways. I mean, when European countries decide to suspend use of the vaccine, it rippled throughout the rest of the world. There are African countries and Asian countries that haven't resumed use yet. And so there is this resonating damage, I think, to their image. And when they released those data on Monday, this was kind of a turning of the tide. They got to say, look, this is solid. We're on track for FDA approval. We have a lot that we can do. We can contribute millions of doses to the U.S. population by April. This could have been really good news for them. But then the Data Safety Monitoring Board openly questioned what they were doing. What will happen as a result of all of this. I mean, you mentioned that the data that U.S. officials have still looks pretty good for AstraZeneca, but like, could this whole controversy prevent AstraZeneca from getting approval in the U.S., or could it set them back on when they might get approval? It could very well set them back, but I do not think that this will stop them from getting authorized. Um, and that might sound crazy. I've, a few other people have asked me that question, and I I don't think that this means FDA will turn them away, and that's for a few reasons. Even the latest results that the Data Safety Monitoring Board points to, saying that actually it's somewhere between 69 and 74% effective against broad infection, but more effective against severe infection. That's still really good. And that still puts it well and above the bar that the FDA set out last summer, saying that a vaccine had to be 50% effective. And so that's one thing. And that's the main thing that FDA is going to be looking at. But then there's also the broader political and foreign policy implications of not 
authorizing this vaccine when already 50 other countries have millions of people worldwide have gotten dosed. And if we want AstraZeneca doses to continue going to the rest of the world, which every official you speak to believes that they're going to play a very important role in doing that, it would look damning for the FDA, considered the gold standard among global regulators, to not also issue an authorization for this vaccine. Mm. I guess regardless of authorization or not, some of the damage is done here, right? I mean, like even just talking to like family or friends about vaccinations, you know, when someone says like, I got my vaccine, you'll occasionally hear someone joke, I hope it wasn't the AstraZeneca, right? Like, what sort of damage does this and everything that's happened before it with the company, what does it do to public trust of the vaccine and the rollout that is necessary, you know, for countries across the world getting vaccinated? That's what health officials and and vaccine experts are really, really worried about. I talked to someone last week, even before the uh, events of Monday, who said, it seems like this company is doing everything possible to make a safe and effective vaccine not look that way. Um, and it, and that's kind of where we are right now. And it makes it especially bad in the U.S. because we don't have any doses out. Whereas mm-hmm. in Europe and in Africa and in Asia, there have been countries using this. And we do know that it's safe and it's not causing blood clots more than they happen in normal life without vaccines. We know all these things. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen, I think, is like you said, there's just this incredible brand awareness around vaccines that we've never had before, where you're talking to family members and they're bragging that they got Moderna yeah, or yeah. Pfizer. <laughs> like, I think that brand awareness will continue. And I think that what's going to happen is as more people get the AstraZeneca vaccine, which of course it is not authorized yet, they say that they're on track for maybe an April authorization. Mm-hmm. As more people get it, it's going to be another word of mouth thing like that where you see a friend who got it, they say they're okay, maybe you consider getting it too. Mm. I guess given the fact that we already do have three vaccines in the U.S., does it really matter here what confidence in AstraZeneca is at the end of the day? I've talked to health officials who admit this. As a country, we may not really need many of these doses from them, to be perfectly honest. We've bought enough from Moderna, Pfizer, and Johnson & Johnson that if those three deliver on the timelines they've promised, we should be able to vaccinate the vast majority of Americans without the AstraZeneca shot. So then it becomes a matter of the AstraZeneca shot being either our backup plan something to use if there are second waves or variant changes, or something that we donate to the rest of the world. Keep in mind, the Trump administration made a 300 million dose deal with AstraZeneca last May. That was the biggest by far of any. And we still have that promise from them. So we're going to have a lot of these vaccines no matter what. (laughs) Yeah, basically. (laughs) Interesting. Um, Where are we with the other vaccines? I mean, are we on track to have enough doses? And like, when does that enough doses point come? I know I ask you this every time we talk, but like, <laughs> given the three that we have right now, especially Johnson & Johnson just coming in with the approval and distribution, like, where are we? Well, uh, President Biden and, and his administration have been saying that we're going to get at least 300 million by May between Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson and & Johnson, and then 600 million by July, again, between those three, but possibly also AstraZeneca, since they are going to be filing, and they do already have a lot of doses prepared and on hand. A spokesperson told me the other day that they have 30 million 
ready to go right away with 50 million more in the next few weeks and then 15 to 20 million per month after. So putting that into perspective, that's more already than Johnson & Johnson has supplied. So in terms of where the others are, Moderna and Pfizer, we largely know to be on track with their production. Johnson & Johnson has run into a few roadblocks and there have been administration officials expressing to me and our colleagues, Aaron Banco and Rachel Rubine, that they have concern about whether Johnson & Johnson is going to be able to meet its own deadlines, including 20 million doses this month. And this month is running out in a few days. So we're going to probably see what happens there very soon. If J&J continues to have hiccups, could AstraZeneca take on a more important role in the U.S.? Absolutely. And that's why they're kind of hesitant to give up more doses than the few million that they've already promised to Mexico and Canada, because there is very much a possibility that AstraZeneca is going to play a more important role in getting those last doses to Americans. And again, their data does look on par with J&J. Thinking about everything that's happened over the past week, really over the past month, when you look at the EU too, with AstraZeneca, It makes me think, and I'm curious what your thoughts are on this, what would have happened if something similar happened with the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine, you know, the first vaccines that we had on the market in the U.S.? That's a really interesting question. And I'd say it kind of did happen because we had those allergic reactions to Pfizer shots. I mean, it wasn't the blood clots, but it was a scary, sudden thing that we didn't see an indication of in clinical trials. And then immediately there were people saying that they were scared to get the shots. And some of those fears are still lingering. I was talking to a family member the other day who said they can't get a vaccine yet because they have allergies. And I said, that's not true. Um, And I had to talk them through what was possible and, and what they could do and that their allergy did not apply in this situation. But that was an early problem for the Pfizer vaccine that concerned health officials as well. I think, though, the lasting damage for AstraZeneca is that 13 European countries acted very hastily to suspend its use. That is more dramatic than what happened with Pfizer. We tracked those events. Health officials issued recommendations about those events, but they didn't suspend Pfizer's use. So part of this is on AstraZeneca for the stumbles that they have made. But I think if you talk to government officials in the U.S., if you talk to vaccine experts, they say that the European Union also did damage to this vaccine and and confidence. I'm curious, as someone who has been tracking pharmaceuticals in the drug industry for a while, what do you think drug companies like AstraZeneca and other ones and, you know, federal health officials in the U.S. and across the world will learn from this whole situation, even looking beyond the coronavirus pandemic? I think one thing to start would be this whole idea of science by press release again, that there are faults to it. And when you eke out information like that and don't put the full picture out that it's a double-edged sword because, yes, you're getting good news out as you have it, but also you're leaving questions. And then something like this could happen again where literally a government authority says, hey, that's not the full story for your vaccine. Um, So I think there's going to be more of a sense of how should we be communicating with the public about our vaccines or just other treatments in general? And how do we communicate risk as well? How do we talk about potential side effects in ways that don't alarm people, but also set them up to understand, you know, you're not just going to get this shot and then walk away and, I don't know, go on a 10-mile run. You're probably going to feel it a bit. (laughs) Something could happen. Mm -hmm. Um, But doing that in a way that doesn't erode trust. I think these are all things that we have to think about. And then there are other 
lasting ways that science has changed in a good way. For instance, the reason that we've even gotten all of these vaccines into clinical trials and now into arms so fast is because some significant changes did happen in the clinical trial process, like starting human trials while lab studies with animals were going, accelerating certain aspects of it, that helped a lot. And maybe we have learned from that that we can be doing that more, especially in a critical situation like a pandemic. All right, that is our show for this week. And seriously, I promise no bad vaccine puns next time. Big thanks to Sarah Overmall from Politico's health team for talking with me this week. And to stay up on that whole team's reporting on the pandemic, be sure to subscribe to the Politico Pulse newsletter, which comes out every weekday. Also, be sure to subscribe to Pulse Check if you haven't yet, wherever you're listening. Our senior producer is Jenny Ament, and our executive producer is Irene Noguchi. I'm Jeremy Siegel. See you next time.